This week, our executive producer, Adam Gubessi, suggested we watch the 1974 movie Zardoz. But we decided instead of watching Sean Connery run around with a ponytail and a diaper, we'd watch the 2017 film Blade Runner 2049 with our good friend Paul Wilcox. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cinematic Respect. I'm Charlie Wallace, and I'm your first co-host. Matt Gubeski, I'm your second co-host, I guess. Yeah, yeah, an executive producer. An executive producer. What does it mean to be an executive producer? All the things you do are now, by definition, an executive producer's job. Shouldn't I get paid to be an executive producer? Uh, shouldn't I get paid to be a co-host? No, you're the artist. You're just making things for art's sake. For exposure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> to further my own personal brand. Exactly. <laughs> well, I guess it depends how well this episode goes, Adam. Maybe we can start talking about uh, some sort of payment plan. Oh, good. Or a percentage. Is there a percentage you want? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Give me 20% of nothing. <laughs> Done. About a year ago, we had a conversation about the 1982 film Blade Runner with uh, you and our good friend Paul Wilcox. And around that same time, the movie Blade Runner 2049 made its premiere in theaters. And so we decided to get back together one year later and review that new film. So welcome back to the show, Paul. It's great to be back. Hi, yes. Blade Runner 2049. Let's, let's do it. Hit me with your opening philosophical question you always ask so i thought we'd start out by asking the question what is everyone's favorite long-awaited sequel to a movie my my i think mine would be uh no hold on phantom menace (laughs) see that's that's what i kind of want to think because because at the time yes of course the trailer of the phantom menace (laughs) Mm. before we saw the movie the first the first like scene the credits scroll yeah. You know, like seeing seeing the scroll, that was... Before you actually the, read it and went, what? What am I yeah, watching? Yeah. Just seeing the Star Wars on the on <laughs> big screen. It's like, whenever I listen to The Saga Begins by Weird Al Yankovic, like that transports me to a very specific type of nostalgia, of prequel nostalgia before the movie came out. <laughs> There's finally another Star Wars movie. Yay! And you watch the trailer over and over again. You're like, oh, this is going to be great. But it like transports you to that moment before you actually saw the movie. And you were like, oh, yeah, Jar Jar doesn't really work. And this pod race goes on a long time. And I'm not 100% convinced about this midi chlorian crap. Like, what am I watching here? <laughs> well, you know, so I would have been in like, I think I was in sixth grade, something like that. I remember being like on the inside, not as like crazy excited about it after seeing it. But I still watched it a lot and still <laughs> still enjoyed it. I saw it like probably three times in the theater, I want to say. I kind of kept my blinders on, but I think we all knew Jar Jar was not the best decision. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, that didn't really deter me at that age when there was pod race and space battle and all that stuff. I think almost a better question is what's a so yeah what's what's a movie that you anticipated for a long period of time a sequel so Phantom Menace is a great answer even more so Indiana Jones four oh because yeah, that yeah, was a really sure. really long time yeah. waiting well because they worked on it forever they just couldn't get it off the ground for various reasons right Crystal Skull is a good answer 
I think my answer probably is actually Tron Legacy, though. Oh, yeah. I love the first Tron. And I was like, oh, they're finally going to make another Tron movie. Because that was also another one of those things that would always occasionally show up in rumors. It's like, oh, Disney wants to do another Tron movie. Oh, okay. And then, you know, nothing. And then they finally made it. And it was surprisingly, like, decent. It wasn't the greatest thing ever. But it also wasn't just like, oh, what did you do? This is terrible. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Now, was yeah. that was that actually was that a a sequel in in like like narratively like it yep. took place afterwards yep it is and there is in fact some uh early use of the creepy de-aging uh, <laughs> oh i remember that yeah to that make was jeff bridges weird. look uh look younger and really at its infancy almost at that point we we're just like this doesn't quite work yeah. Really falling into the uncanny valley here. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, for me, it's hard to think of sequels per se. I Strangely, I was really excited for the Ghostbusters remake because I just thought there was a lot of potential there and that uh, I don't think most people were particularly happy about that, despite some bright points. Um, it was fine. It was fine. It is an, it is an aggressively fine movie. Yeah, the, <laughs> the thing is, there's just so much expectation when you come up with a sequel or an extension of an existing property like that. And that's that is true. That's a wall you come up against when you try to create a movie like Blade Runner 2049. And uh, one of the things we'll get into is how successful we thought that was, whether it was worthwhile. Um, but first, let's start off with a little synopsis of the film. So Blade Runner 2049 is the sequel to Blade Runner. It takes place 30 years after that first movie. And it is about a replicant who goes by the designation K, as played by Ryan Gosling, who is himself a Blade Runner, which is to say he goes and hunts down replicants from uh, about 30 years ago who are no longer registered due to a blackout that happened in 2022 that wiped out all the records and in the course of uh, one such replicant played by dave bautista he discovers evidence of a deceased female replicant who 28 years ago had born a child which was something believed to be impossible for replicants to do so Kay goes on a journey to track down this child because his boss is concerned that if the existence of a replicant child were discovered that would upend the entire social order where the replicants are the slave class and humans are above them. And during the course of the movie has reason to believe he may in fact be the replicant child. And then there's tap dancing, probably. Yes, this whole movie is a prequel to La La Land. So, Paul, uh, usually this is the part where we ask why you chose a particular film. But in this case, we actually chose the film for you because we knew we wanted to do this episode a year later. So thanks for holding off. In fact, we told you you weren't allowed to watch the film. Yeah, and that and that was okay. Okay. Hopefully it wasn't was, a huge was inconvenience fine. for you. <laughs> that was fine. It was like a, it's like a pleasant little surprise waiting. I just put it out of my mind. I wasn't. I wasn't champion at the bit or anything. I was able to buy an Xbox for the explicit purchase of playing my new purchase. <laughs> of a 4K copy. Yes. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I got that uh, that nice marginal increase in uh, sharpness <laughs> <laughs> over Blu-ray <laughs> on my 4K non-HDR TV. Well, like you're saying, you just have to sit right next to the screen. 
<laughs> yeah, it takes up your whole field you're of really vision. close. Try to look for the pixels. Can't do it. You know? <laughs> and there's something about investing in that that really made me watch the movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I say if you're something. not if you're not turning your head while you're watching a movie in order to see the whole screen, you're not doing it right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I bought a 4K player so I could half watch it from the other room. (laughs) (laughs) This is just put it on while, you know, doing the dishes or whatever. (laughs) Get get that nice Dolby Dolby vision. (laughs) But before we talk about the movie proper, we should probably talk about the three short films that preceded the release of this movie. Setting up some of the... uh, background for this movie of what things that happened between 2019 and the world of the original Blade Runner and the new 2049 movie. Uh, So these three shorts were commissioned as part of the production of the movie. So uh, two of them actually are live action and have actors from the film. And the first one, Blade Runner Blackout 2022, is actually uh, an anime uh, directed by Shinichiro Watanabe, who I'm familiar with, at least from... Uh, the 1998 series Cowboy Bebop. So I was actually pretty excited about this one. Uh, I hadn't had a chance to watch these short films yet, too. So this is my first time. Yeah, I actually probably did this backwards of how I was supposed to do it. And then I went and watched Blade Runner 2049 and was like, oh, that's awesome. And then, like, you know, logged on to the Internet and was like, oh, there's these short films that came out. So I actually ended up watching the setup after the resolution. Hey, join the club. (laughs) Except that you were like, Paul, watch these uh, three shorts first before you watch the movie. And then I proceeded to just watch the movie and forget that the short existed. (laughs) (laughs) And then watched one uh, half an hour ago. I mean, A, if you watch the movie in the theater, then of course you wouldn't have seen these until afterward. And then B, if... No, these were released ahead of time. Oh, really? So you could have watched these for free. I get it. So, Paul, you're an anime fan. Uh, what did you think of the the first of these three shorts? Um, I, I thought it was pretty cool. You know, I really, really enjoyed the the variety of styles, uh, animation styles included in the one short, too. Yeah, it was definitely something I wasn't expecting was multiple different styles. Yeah, like the flashback. Yeah. Kind of reminded me of like what they did with, I think, maybe recently the Batman Ninja animation, where there's like a flashback and it's in a totally different, much more... Uh, I don't know, very hand-drawn look to it. Yeah, like that sort of sketched look almost. Mm-hmm. And uh, having watched the full movie first, um, it was kind of cool to see the events of the blackout uh, with my very own eyes. Yeah, for me, this was the best of the short films. Wow, I would totally just watch like a full series of just like Blade Runner anime. Like I would absolutely watch that. That is a great, great idea. Someone should do that. Like, legit, someone should do that. Since they didn't make enough money to make another movie, just make an anime, man. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You wonder if this was almost a test run to try to do something like that. Like, oh, this is a potential way that we could go with all of these storylines, and let's do just a proof of principle sort of thing here. Yeah, and I thought it worked out pretty well, too. So I thought the animation was gorgeous. I'm a huge fan of Cowboy Bebop, and I think it's on par with that. I think it was... I would have liked to see things developed a little bit more in a way that they can't possibly be developed in the short amount of time that we have. It showed a lot of promise, and then, but it was just a lot of flash. What do you mean by flash? Like, uh, flash lots Gordon? of explosion, lots of Queen? lots of fighting and action, uh, lots of weird flash. stylistic ah. symbolism that I couldn't quite <laughs> figure out. 
because there wasn't any character background character to establish what any of it was supposed to mean. Again, it's a really good proof of principle for an anime that I want to see. And I'm disappointed that I won't be able to. You assume. I assume maybe. I think I agree with you on the broad strokes of just like it's really well done and I'd love to see more. Um, it is the case that uh, when I rewatched it for this podcast was, in fact, the third time I'd seen it because I watched it right after I saw the movie in theaters. And I watched it when I bought the Blu-ray and then I watched it again a couple of days ago. And so maybe that's why I'm not having the problems that you're having, because to me, it's pretty clear what's going on and who the characters are and why they're doing what they're doing. So, yeah, it looks great. I think it's the best of these short films, honestly. Of the three short films, it is the one that actually tells a story that I think is interesting in of itself to tell, which is this story of the blackout and why they're doing it. Like, there's a motivation behind there. Like, the other two short films, um, so there's the 2036 one where Neander Wallace essentially gets approval to start making new replicants because they had stopped at one point after the blackout. And then the 2048 one is just uh, Dave Bautista's character kicking ass and taking names because some awful people are going to like assault a girl and her mom. But then he pays the consequences, right? And those two are just kind of like, you know, that's nice, but I don't know that I that I really gain any appreciation of the stuff other than like seeing that I guess that, you know, Sapper Morton is actually a decent person who just happens to be a replicant. But to me, like the most interesting thing about those two movies are that they're both directed by Ridley Scott's son, Luke. Oh, yeah. The anime independently is just like, oh, like I like the idea of the blackout and the re- I understand the motivation for why they're doing it. It's very stylistic. It only has like 15 minutes, right? But it already gets you with some philosophical stuff. Like when the one replicant says no heaven or hell for us, this world is the only thing we get, right? So. So yeah, the one with Jared Leto really felt almost like either a screen test or just rehearsal for him. It's like, oh, here, let Jared Leto say some stuff on a day that he's not filming, (laughs) right? It's like, we didn't really, I agree, we didn't really need any of that. And you also mentioned to me that I don't know why I didn't notice that Benedict Wong was in this, which is weird because he's not in the film proper. So they hired him. with Luke Scott, I don't know. It could be. They hired him specifically just to do this little extra film and then yeah the stuff with dave batista was i mean it was fine it was a fun little action sequence but completely unnecessary because even you're talking about him being a decent guy i think that's established in the film yeah so it's not adding anything Mm -hmm. and the stuff with jared leto could have easily been implied from the film right we know he's in a position of a lot of power by the time 2049 starts so do we really need any of that background from him does it add anything you're right. I think the only film that adds anything is the first one. Um, so this movie is directed by Denis Villeneuve and with cinematographer Roger Deakins, who was famously nominated for, I think, 13 Oscars for Best Cinematography before this movie and lost every time. And this is the, the first time that he's actually won was for this film. So maybe we should just start talking with the visuals. Uh, Paul, what were your impressions watching this for the first time, especially compared to the original Blade Runner. You know, I don't know. I felt like the, like visually the world was a little more bleak might be a way to put it. Like it seemed like there was a a lot more, more flat kind of gray tones or like the same tone over each shot, like maybe a little less colorful than the original. At least that's the way it from, I, I haven't seen the original in a while. No, so you're saying it was much more bleak in this one? 
Yes, that's what I I felt like. Aggressively Less, color graded. Yes, yes. <laughs> like not to the extreme of a movie like where to the point where there's like color motifs, but there kind of was, you know, like sure. basically everything being yellow in in uh, the Wallace HQ or whatever. You know, the city was a lot more gray, even though there were still kind of like the garish signs. It was a lot more subdued. Yeah, and you get like the orange and the Vegas scenes. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Remembering back to the original Blade Runner, I think that one maybe did a lot more with shadows and sort of light and dark. I know this one does too. I mean, there's certainly a lot of scenes, especially the ones in the Wallace compound where they're doing a lot of stuff with lighting changes on the faces over time. But um, yeah, I remember the first movie being a lot more dark, but using a lot of dark and light, whereas this one's using a lot more color. The other thing I noticed was how much more open this movie feels. Like Blade Runner... The original, in a sense, is very claustrophobic, right? Yes. You're in crowded streets and mm-hmm. enclosed buildings and spaces and stuff. And whereas this one, you spend lots of time in like open areas, like the whole Vegas scene, you know, is wide open and the reservoir, whatever, at the end, very open feeling. You know, he spends a lot more time outside, like in the San Diego garbage dump stuff, right? Yeah. But like but like noticeably outside, right? As opposed to like where Blade Runner where when he's outside it still feels like he's inside, just how closed in it feels. There are some shots on the street that are sort of crowded, but you don't you don't get the same sense of like the claustrophobia from the original. Do you think there's a reason for it to feel less claustrophobic, or do you think that's just a choice of the director because they don't like that style as much? I don't know if I'd say it's because they don't like that style as much as they just want to put you in the same world as Blade Runner, but not just repeat the same sort of shots and things. And I think a way to do that is to just have a contrast where you suddenly open up the world, but it's the same kind of world that you're in. Yeah. Touch on some of the aspects from the original film, but not rely on them too heavily, like that first shot of flying into Los Angeles, but then a good deal of the movie taking place elsewhere. Or even just the actual first shot of the eye opening, right? Which oh, that's is a true. lift from, from Blade Runner. So yeah, there were a lot of visual references to the first film. Uh, there was that opening eye shot. There was a lot of, I think, multiple shots of pianos. In fact, I think the key that Ryan Gosling plays on each of those pianos may be the same key that Deckard played in the original film. Oh, okay. And and he is playing the same key from uh, like the beginning at the beginning and then in Las Vegas as well. I think it is because yeah, it uh, seemed like it. That's a level of detail past what I was observing. <laughs> yeah, I, the, the, in the original film, he just plays one key, and Sapper's house. There's the key that's slightly depressed. The the key thing. I mean, it, uh, you could go out on a limb and think that there's something important about that because of some sort of shared replicant memory that's been you know implanted. But oh, that's that that's kind too, of a yeah. conspiracy theory corner, but you know, oh, like sorry, whenever you see coincidences uh... like that, you kind of think that maybe there's there's a shared memory amongst all the replicants. That's interesting. Yeah. So then, are you operating under the assumption that Harrison Ford is a replicant? If it was the same key that he was playing, just happened to plunk down in the original movie, that could contribute to that theory. Yes, I think. Well, what's your theory? Do you have a theory? <laughs> oh, oh, you mean the theory that. Harrison Ford is a replicant, or that Decker is a replicant? Decker, not Harrison Ford. We know Harrison Ford is a replicant. Yes, that's absolutely <laughs> well established. I'm not sure. When I was watching the movie, I, I don't know that I like assumed anything either way. Like Maybe I was just kind of operating under the assumption that he was, even though it doesn't really, nothing really points to it. And I'm not sure that it really matters either. 
And I think that's what I decided at the end of the Blade Runner episode was that I thought it didn't really matter whether he was or not. And I liked the ambiguity. And I was worried in this film that they were going to somehow answer it. And again, I was looking this time and finding things that would really push you a little bit one way or the other, but nothing that would decisively say, yes, Deckard was or was not a replicant. Yeah, the closest thing is uh, Wallace's speech in his little water chamber, the Deckard, (laughs) right where he's like, oh, of course you would find yourself drawn to her because that's the way you were designed. Or maybe not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he throws that in there like... (laughs) Which I admittedly appreciate, because I know that one of the worries was that, as Charlie was saying, this would, by its nature, have to definitively fall one way or the other. And, and actually, I think um, they do a really good job of still maintaining that balance. You know, they, they tell the story in a way where you don't feel the need to know. Right, exactly. And then they don't come down either side on whether he is or isn't. So from my perspective, where he's totally human, it still works. <laughs> but the person we haven't really talked about yet is actually K. Himself, Ryan Gosling's character. Oh, the main character. Who is, yeah. <laughs> who is the main character? The question is, is he a replicant? And the answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. More or less right away. <laughs> the movie is not shy about that. Oh, I, <laughs> I like how uh like reviews mentioned that Kay was a replicant and people were like complaining about like, oh, you're spoiling the movie for us. And then you watch and you're like, you literally find that out in like the first three minutes of <laughs> actual movie. Which I loved yeah. the first time I saw it, too, was that I don't think it was... If you had read reviews, maybe it was clear. But if you hadn't, I don't think you knew whether Ryan Gosling was going to play a replicant or not. And I liked how they just immediately told you, instead yeah. of something like Blade Runner, where you might be questioning it, at least towards the end. And I, and I don't think I knew that until I watched it last night. I think one of the other interesting things about that scene is that the screenwriter Hampton Fancher, that opening scene, he had actually written for the original Blade Runner. Like that was a oh. scene for the original screenplay. Oh, and wow. then it as you know, that movie evolved and stuff, right? There wasn't a place for it anymore, so they had to get rid of it. But I thought it was interesting that he took that scene and brought it back to use in the sequel, because you know, he worked on both this movie and the original movie. So there was continuity there as well. Oh. Interesting. Yeah, but I remember them talking about that scene in uh, the Blade Runner documentary, Dangerous Days. And so then when watching that and then watching 2049 and going, oh, there's the scene. Like, that was like, oh, cool. Oh, fun. Yeah. But yeah, let's talk about K. Yeah, so we know he's a replicant or at least some version of a replicant. He gets the idea that perhaps he is the the child who's born of a replicant. But um, considering those two things, what did you think of Ryan Gosling's performance? So it seems like a very like flat kind of performance, which I you know is good for a replicant. You believed he was a replicant. Yes, I I very much believed he was a replicant. You know, there wasn't anything that pulled me out of the movie. I in in his performance, it was you know pretty pretty good. Yeah, I thought it played really well into his acting style in general. I think he has a sort of weird, like you said, almost not like flat, but like not quite flat performance yeah. that he often gives like yeah detached yes or, yes yeah detached sometimes emotionally ambiguous yes yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a it's a lot of shots of him being very matter of fact but then doing a lot with his eyes actually his eyes were i think the most fascinating thing to watch in his scenes yeah ping-ponging back and forth <laughs> right or... <laughs> and i think there's movies that his style of acting works really well in like this one and other ones where 
maybe it doesn't quite as well. There's one movie that people seem to really like. Have you ever seen, is it called The Other Guys? The Nice Guys? No, sorry. Yeah. The Nice Guys. Nice you're right. Guys? Yeah. yeah. I didn't really like that one. Yeah. <laughs> Where it's much more of a comedy. I actually really liked that movie. A lot of people really liked that movie, and I didn't. And it was weird because I'd never seen Ryan Gosling in like some sort of more like comedy kind of role. Yeah, yeah. Somehow I thought it worked. I haven't seen it, but based on Charlie's taste in movies, I assume it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sort of movie I would think that I would really like, but it has Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe, sort of a buddy cop thing going on. Fighting around the world. <laughs> But that's that was actually the first movie I saw when I when I I haven't seen like that much with Ryan Gosling. But that's when I was kind of like, oh, like he's more than just the guy in the notebook. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I was like, oh, he can do he can do other stuff, too. So Kay has a girlfriend who is a an artificial intelligence, like a hologram projected into his household named Joy. I think Ana de Armas does a really nice job. Like. I was fully convinced. Well, we, yeah. So what we know about her is that she is at least initially confined to the household because of the technology that he has, right? There's like some hologram producing arm that moves around the house. Yeah, she's like the the emergency medical hologram from Star Trek Voyager before he gets the uh, the little portable <laughs> emitter. Oh. But we also know that based on advertisements around the city that this is a commercially produced AI that anyone can get that's specifically designed for companionship so it's she's not she's not unique in that respect there are a lot of other versions that look exactly like her and started out exactly like her probably just rooms over in a separate apartment there's a brief shot of the uh the like settings for her in oh, which is there's there? like yeah. yeah there's like slim or you know it's like slender like yeah, hair slender. color Oh, One of the wow. things I notice is, is that uh, her her accent, I think, is specifically said as Cuban. Oh, really? Huh. Which is partly because Ana de Armas is Cuban. But <laughs> in theory, right, like you can you could set it to be whatever accent style you wanted it to be. Because it's interesting because the ads they show, it looks like he must have kept visually close to the default. <laughs> <laughs> He's a lazy man. Yeah. No customization. <laughs> yeah. Well, although if you if you'd like paid attention, right, like so obviously like the hair and stuff is different, mm-hmm. but in the ads, she seems to be actually talking with a generic American accent. Mm. So so I thought it was an interesting touch, a nice touch. Yeah. So we know that she's designed and been bought basically as a companion for him, but we do see like a nice interplay, nice sort of domestic relationship between them that I don't know, at least initially feels very real. So the question that almost immediately comes up is how human is she? Like we were talking in the previous film about like how human are replicants, how much like replicants are human. Um, Where does she fit into all of this? Because the movie is, I feel the movie is very ambiguous about it. Almost the most tragic thing about it, though there's the moment early earlier on where she's like, real boys have to have names because you're not a replicant, you're born, you know, so your name should be Joe. And then after she dies, and then he's like walking around the city afterwards and sees the ad, right? And the ad's like, oh, you look like a real Joe and what a day or something like stuff that yeah. the ad says that her, his version of Joy had said it was like, oh, so this is actually really just pre-programmed in some way which I actually found that sort of tragic on some level yeah yeah i, rem- I remember th- that scene as well and i guess i didn't uh, 
the weight of that didn't fully sink in for me because I was like, oh, right. That is like some, she sounds like a little more canned or she is a little more canned than she comes off as. So, yeah, I kind of go back and forth on that. The implications of that scene every time I watch it. So surprisingly, of all the movies we've discussed on this podcast, uh, I think I may have seen this movie the most number of times, despite the fact it came out last year. How many times have you seen it? I've seen it four times. So twice in the theater and then twice on Blu-ray. The first, I guess, three times I was very much in your camp, Adam. It seems very tragic. Like how much of the things that felt very real before are just her program. But if you look at where that comes in the context of the rest of the film, it's immediately after. So Wallace has captured Deckard and has brought a new replicant version of Rachel to him, who is the the woman who turns out to be the mother, and she's the one of the main characters from the original film. And he points out that she had green eyes, right? And so that he knows that right. this is somehow not the correct version of her. And then she gets murdered. And the scene with the big advertisement of Joy comes immediately after that. Mm, like, so, he knows that's not the real Joy. Yeah, so I wonder at that time, like, you see those things, so it's a very conflicting feeling, like, I think, yeah, at that moment, he realizes, like, that's not the same person, even though it's it's like a facsimile. Whereas that, I don't think that would have come across if that other scene hadn't immediately been before it. I still think I would have thought it was very tragic, and, like, maybe he never, or she never really had the capability to love. Yeah, because, I mean, just like with replicants, you could say that just because a, you know, being consciousness is reproducible doesn't make it necessarily less real or sentient, you know, even if... They might say similar things because of their programming or whatever. Doesn't have to mean a shallower, you know, consciousness or sentience or whatever. But on the other end, the very first scene that we see Joy, she's coming in and she's cooked, in quotes, a meal for him and is wearing sort of a 1950s housewife outfit, too. So they're kind of leading you down that direction at the beginning. And then how much does that change over the course of the film? I mean, she exists solely for him. She sacrifices herself for him and doesn't have anything outside of him. So, I mean, is that love? Did she have a choice? What is love? (laughs) Baby, don't hurt me. (laughs) Don't hurt me. No more. I think that's a great way to end that section. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. So another replicant that we're introduced to is Love, who is the assistant of Neander Wallace, and is frequently tasked with doing his dirty work. Evil people named Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> I finally Does nailed this it with this one. part of Terrible Charlie's list? I, I, there, <laughs> yeah, why not? Bad Wallace list. <laughs> what were people's impressions of her? Does she work as a character for you? Uh, I mean, yeah. The, I think the fact that I had such a strong, like, oh, I hate you reaction shows how well she did. Because I didn't hate actress i hated the character i was like oh you're so uh, no no stop it the end and she definitely has a complex like it's her job to be the best possible replicant servant to her boss but what kind of made it come home a little bit more this time was that i watched because i watched the short films i was like oh there's some featurettes to watch and i watched one where uh, the actress talked about love being 12 years old and that's kind of how she played her like sort of like a super strong, like hyper intelligent, but emotionally 12 years old and sort of a very, very strange relationship with her father slash lover slash whatever. Right. And then I felt a little bit more like, oh, I kind of see where she's coming from with this performance. It's very intense. Mm-hmm. 
It's definitely intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think for me, though, the most interesting thing is that when she kills uh, Robin Wright's character, mm-hmm. is that as she kills her, right, this single tear like rolls down her face. Just like the, you know, tear when uh, Wallace is inspecting, you know, the new replicant unit or whatever. Right. To me, it implied that she doesn't want to kill, but she will do it because that's what Wallace wants. Yeah, that single tear seems to indicate almost a little bit more of a captive dynamic, I guess, or something like that. Yeah. Do you want to add anything, Charlie, or should we move on to Harrison Ford? Ooh, let's please. Let's move on to Harrison Ford. All right. So I'll go from the left. You go from the right and uh, tackle him. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, from the amount of face punching that he does, I don't think you guys have a chance. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely link to this. Car and I were watching uh, some interviews with Ryan Gosling and Harrison Ford, and they're pretty amusing. And yep, the one of the stories about the filming was that Harrison Ford in his fight scenes with Ryan Gosling, actually punches Ryan Gosling one time, <laughs> accidentally. When, when you search for Harrison Ford on YouTube, the first auto-complete is punched Ryan Gosling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I just want to watch all these videos. They just sound so good. They are actually pretty good. Here is what made Harrison Ford punch Ryan Gosling in the face. Ryan Gosling and Harrison Ford being assholes to each other. Harrison Ford can't remember Ryan Gosling's name. <laughs> Harrison Ford doesn't know who Jennifer Lawrence is. <laughs> Ryan Gosling tells a strange story about cellophane. <laughs> wow. Well, from all reports, Harrison Ford's like a really cool, nice guy. But in interviews, he's always very crotchety. <laughs> right. But I think he's deliberately doing I think that. so, too. <laughs> But yes, Harrison Ford reprises his role as Rick Deckard. Uh, he's eventually found by Kay in the course of trying to track down the child born of a replicant. And it turns out that Deckard is the father and Rachel is the mother. Shocker. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Hands up who didn't see that coming. And that's what I thought. Uh, I actually thought it was interesting watching this time is that, you know, Harrison Ford is second build in this movie, right? But he doesn't come in until over halfway through the film and it's a long movie, right? This is halfway through the film is an hour and 20 minutes. (laughs) It's like at the two hour 40. It's actually an, it's actually an hour 40 is when he comes in. Oh, wow. So that's, yeah, that's quite a ways through. Cause when I looked, I looked at the timestamp when he showed up and it was like, there was literally less than an hour left of the movie. And that included credits. And yet he sort of like his presence or sometimes lack of presence you know, physical presence, but like just sort of hangs over the whole picture in some way. And not just because he was in the first Blade Runner, right? Like the whole story is about him in some way, kind of, right? Because certainly there's the moments where Kay thinks he's the replicant child, right? And so therefore, in some ways, he's looking for his father. And so, you know, the fact that it turns out he's not his father in some way doesn't quite matter, right? Because he's still like a father figure to him for large chunks of the movie even if he doesn't necessarily know it or even when he knows it's not true, right? It's still the case that, you know, he's willing to rescue him and give him the happy ending so forth. So when he was withheld from the movie for so long, I was suspecting it was just going to be like a little cameo, right? Like, oh, we got Harrison Ford in to shoot for a day and then he left. But then he's in the rest, quite a bit of the rest of the film. He doesn't get a decent amount of screen time after that. And 
I don't know. I just thought it was a great choice. Being confident enough to know that, like, yeah, we don't need Harrison Ford here until this particular point in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought it was good. You know, it was like a very, it, it was interesting because, you know, yeah, waiting the whole movie for him to show up. It did feel like a very uh, Harrison Ford performance, mm-hmm. especially during the action scenes. Lots of good, good face punching and the kind of wit you would expect. Yeah, the great thing about Harrison Ford fight scenes in general, right, is how he makes it seem like he's making it up as it goes along. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. It, like he has like, no idea what he's doing. Well, no, right, <laughs> he's but just like improvising. That it, yeah, it feels like unrehearsed in some way, and you know that it has to be the case, right? That they, you know, they rehearse this and do this, and only punch Ryan with Gosling in the face once, and. You know, <laughs> yeah. You know, Harrison Ford always has this feeling of just basically like, oh, crap, this could go south at any moment. In case it's not clear, I'm pointing this out as like a strength of his. And uh, I think that this movie is no exception to that. One of my favorite scenes is that fight scene, not just simply for the fight choreography, but everything that's going on in the background, too. It's this they're in Las Vegas and there's all of the it's like a hologram Vegas show going on in the background, like constantly oscillating between different performers like you get elvis in there i think you get maybe liberace and marilyn monroe and they're the sound it's glitching in and out so you only get the sound every few seconds and it's like a skype call yeah it's like a skype (laughs) it felt disjointed but not in the way not in the usual sort of insulting a film sort of way like in an appropriate for the scene sort of way i also really like the way that fight ends Whereas, like, we could keep punching each other, we could just go get a drink. (laughs) (laughs) And for the dramatic parts, too, I thought Harrison Ford probably turned in one of the better performances I've seen from him. And I like him, too, and everything else, too. And I loved him in this. I wonder if that has to do with, going back to our Blade Runner episode, I think there were complaints from Harrison Ford about Ridley Scott maybe not giving him enough to go off of in his performance for that film. From what I've heard, the opposite is true of this, where Denis Villeneuve really worked with him a lot and gave him a good sense of what he was supposed to be doing in any given scene and what the story was. I think that really came through in the performance. Agreed. Cool. So Jared Leto doing as usual. I'm going to get really into this role thing. So he, I think, worked with some people who are actually blind to pick up some mannerisms and, you know ways that a blind person would actually behave and he actually his contacts too which in the film were like pretty much opaque white were really opaque so he also couldn't see anything during those scenes either when he had them in did he really kill someone so he could figure out the best way to murder a replicant (laughs) (laughs) getting really behind the scenes there yes (laughs) gotta find out how the sausage gets made (laughs) In the Blade Runner episode, we talked a lot about a lot of human characters being very robotic or cold and a lot of the replicant characters having more human characteristics. And this is one where um, I think there's a lot in the movie. He's he's a character that has um, enhancements. They put different cartridges on that he can use to control robots that fly around the room. And so immediately we're kind of given the sense that, OK, he's a human, yet he's a little bit colder in that sense. Well, I think one of the interesting things is that, right, the first Blade Runner movie, right, deals with these themes about what makes replicants different from people and not really much and stuff. But the replicants that we see in this movie, for the most part, seem very focused. 
Like they don't have those shades of gray that like the replicants had in Blade Runner. And sorry, I'm specifically talking about the Wallace replicants, the new breed. Mm-hmm. So, right. So like K is, K, yeah. is very, K is very focused and dedicated to his job. Uh, Love is very focused on, you know, doing what Wallace wants. And then I guess uh, Mackenzie Davis's character, Mariette, is I mean, she's perhaps not quite as focused, although she sort of is in that she's dedicated to the resistance, it seems like. Right. And so that's the only reason she approaches Kay in the first place is because her higher ups, right, tell her to go after him. So, yeah, I don't know. So speaking of Mariette, I don't know why it didn't occur to me until now that she was probably a replicant. I just assumed that she was human. Now, it makes sense because she was actually in the resistance that she would be a replicant. But she also earlier in the film, when she is trying to seduce Kay the first time they meet, she hears the little Joy's little tone Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, says he has a message or something like that. And she's like, oh, you're not into real girls. Or something like that, right? Which made me think then that she was a human, but I guess that doesn't really make sense. I mean, I just, I guess this whole theme of not really being able to tell the difference necessarily anyway. Yeah, come to think of it, I think I did that too. And then it's like when, yeah, when she's in the resistance, it's like, oh, okay, yeah. And it doesn't really make a huge difference in the story, but she seemed a little more, maybe it was just her character being like slightly more, maybe more animated a little less focused than the other um, replicants kind of gave me that impression. But going back to Kay and talking about how focused he is. So this is a, these Wallace replicants. The idea behind them is they're not supposed to be able to disobey orders. Right. And yet throughout the whole movie, Ryan Gosling does that. I mean, after the first, you know, half hour or so. Well, but that's partly because he thinks he's not a Wallace replicant. Right. So on some level, it's not inborn it's like social conditioning yeah exactly so how much of their personalities is just the social conditioning as opposed to their programming so you say they're very focused and so that somehow it's not as close to that line between human or replicant but we also know that at least k can somehow manage to do things he's not supposed to be able to do i would say i agree with you but it the movie does a good job of like being able to pull each character over this line one way or the other at various times. I mean, they're all hovering in that area. So, yeah, do you think this movie has things to say about the nature of humanity? Or do you think that's not really the story it's interested in telling? I think this movie takes the themes of the first one and more or less just tries to expand on them. So I think every character has something to say about the nature of humanity and where this line is between what's real and what's not real or what's human and what's a replicant i mean especially the character of joy who we already talked about i think that was a nice way to update the themes of the original film because it's you know in 1982 it made more sense to talk about like oh these humanoid robots walking around i think in science fiction that was something that we expected to have a little bit more of by now whereas now i think artificial intelligence is something that is more prominent in our mind rather than actual androids walking around but i mean what does it say differently i guess than the original movie and that's i don't know i think it has the same theme of what makes humanity what makes a person a person and that that line is especially blurry and you're not supposed to the movie doesn't answer that it just asks the question and it asks it in i think hundreds of different ways you know from the scoring at least i mean more so from the original movie than this one but all the different characters and you know their interactions with each other and just the nature of who they are yeah i do think the one key difference here though is the concept of 
uh, procreation. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. That yeah, explicitly yeah. the fact that you could have a child would make you either just as human or more than human, as one of the characters says at one point. But counteracting that, right? Like that's what Wallace is really interested in, right? Is Wallace being Jared Leto's character, not you. Uh, <laughs> Wallace is really interested in um, trying to figure out a way that replicants could essentially, I guess, become self-sustaining, that they could procreate, which on some level is like from a business standpoint, that's kind of weird because, right, like, well, if they can have kids, right, then you never need to make more of your own. So how do you sell more? But I guess from the perspective of Wallace essentially wanting to see himself as God, more or less, right, that thematically ties in with that. Yeah. And I also thought it was an interesting counterpoint that the reason that the replicants had hope in the resistance group was because that they were able to, there was some proof that they as a species could procreate. And at the same time, that's what Wallace wants to do is give them that ability. So you kind of wonder if he actually was able to succeed in doing that if he would be sowing his own destruction by doing that. Yeah, but you do get the impression, right, that uh, if he was able to succeed doing that, that he would twist it in some way. Oh, yeah, I mean. And that's why the resistance is like against him, right? Why they don't want Deckard to reveal any information to him. Like, so that itself is like an interesting contrast, right? In that on some level, they want the same thing, but the details of how they go about it, right, are actually very starkly different. And I think, you know, related to uh, the nature of humanity and what makes, you know, uh, someone human, I think that the addition of joy was kind of interesting in that in that it gave replicants such as Mariette someone to like she sort of does the same thing and that she has something more art of someone more artificial to sort of look down on like when she says i've been inside you and there's not as much there as you think there is you know like you could see a human saying the same thing to a replicant that's a good point yeah i hadn't thought of that they kind of added a dimension there so how about music the 1982 Blade Runner famously had the Vangelis soundtrack that we talked about last time. This, however, was not Vangelis. It was a collaboration between Benjamin Wallfish and Hans Zimmer. Uh, in fact, I don't think they were actually the first choice either for the soundtrack here. It was actually a third composer who wasn't Vangelis. So Adam and I actually looked it up, and I guess the reason there was Vangelis just didn't want to do it. It wasn't interested in rehashing the same work that he had done before. Uh, but the music is still very integral part of the film. I, I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was very atmospheric, really kind of immersed you in this kind of dystopian world that the the movie built. Felt to me like maybe a little, yeah, like a little darker tone to it than the first movie. Yeah, I really, I thought it worked really well. Yeah, it's not quite as romantic in some of the themes since the first Blade Runner. But I guess, you know, the first Blade Runner has more of a romance running through it than this movie does. Oh, right. Yeah. So I noticed at least that uh, it was nice how the music at least starts with that very Blade Runner feel from like the first movie. It has that similar electronic sort of tonality that the Vangelis theme has before it just kind of transitions into just standard Hans Zimmer scoring. Like the sort of thing you get in like Interstellar or whatever. Yeah, I thought it worked. I think the if there was any complaint, quote unquote, uh, per se about this, it would be that 
uh, I don't know if any of the themes were as memorable as some of the Vangelis themes. Like, you know, I can hum like the closing theme of Blade Runner, uh, the original right now. I'm not sure I could hum any of Hans Zimmer's themes. And we actually get a little, just a little tiny bit of the original theme, I think, at the very end. Oh, with the tears and rain quote. Yeah, exactly. Musical quote. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it did a good job of evoking a similar sort of feel while perhaps not being quite as um, memorable. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. The thing I loved about the original soundtrack was it was it kind of reinforces a lot of the themes of the movie. It's like something music is something very human, but it's this synthesizer based soundtrack at the same time. So just kind of a hybrid of, you know, technology and human. So I would would have liked to see a little bit more of that here. Yeah, you get the main theme, which does that. And then totally agree. The rest of it's somewhat forgettable. So do you think we're going to get that sequel that they set up pretty clearly there with the uh, growing replicant resistance? Uh, Maybe in anime form. Yeah, that would be great. (laughs) That I would like to see. I'd watch it. I don't know that. How well did this movie do? Uh, It worldwide, I think it was maybe 250 million with a cost of about 150. So, you know. It definitely made up its money, but you know how Hollywood is. We've talked about that before. Where It's got to be highway robbery. Exactly. To be yes. successful. <laughs> it's got to be hand over fist. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, people keep, yeah, we'll talk about this as being like somewhat of a box office failure. But no, I don't expect another full length motion, live action motion picture for probably another decade, at least, if not longer. Blade Runner 2079. <laughs> sure. Yep. But I, I think. The thing I did like about the shorts ahead of the movie was that I think they did prove that there's a lot that could be done with the Blade Runner universe if people really wanted to do it. It's just a million different stories that you could tell along the same vein. So I'd like to see it. I mean, in whatever form we can get it, but... Comic book? Sure, why not? I'm somewhat surprised that doesn't already exist. Paul, would you like to see any more Blade Runner? Oh, yeah, I I absolutely would. I think the, I'm done. No the more. World, to me, like, the world they built is just so intriguing that i'd I'd love to see where they could go with it i think what really got to me with the you know world in 2049 was about you know basically complete ecosystem collapse and synthetic farming and all that and watching this movie that came at a very you know just reading news this week about like these like really troubling studies about how much like arthropods and vertebrates like insects have already like reduced in the you know equatorial regions and then immediately being like oh that's that's pretty apocalyptic and then like turn on this movie and be like oh okay well maybe we'll have our uh, neander wallace um come and invent synthetic farming mm-hmm. yeah so no need to do us, anything <laughs> and then it'll take us into the you know the true hellscape we've all been waiting for in one of those featurettes uh jared leto was talking about how to sympathize with his character and that was really funny because he said well, he's got a really big ego, but then again, he did kind of save the entire world. So we know people around right now who have bigger egos and have done a lot less than that. <laughs> yeah. uh, so overall, Paul, did you enjoy the film? Would you recommend it to anyone? Uh, yes, I, I enjoyed it very much. I would I would recommend it to anyone who was a fan of the original or likes uh, movies that explore these types of themes that we've been talking about. And I thought visually it was really interesting, pretty just immersive between the visuals and the music. So I I overall think it's a a great watch. Lots of good performances by all. Yeah, I was 
one of my favorite films of last year, and I've watched it four times, and I think that's that's saying a lot coming from me. <laughs> Who'd rather have a new experience and watch a new film generally than rewatch things that I've already seen? So I don't know. It's something you can find something new in every time you watch it too. There's just a lot of different layers going on, and a lot of different character motivations, and great acting, and uh, and it's a beautiful movie too. I, I can't stress that enough. It's just I could turn it on mute and watch the whole thing and still enjoy it. I guess one thing is that it's long. You just you have to be able to dig in. Yeah, for that, you do. You yeah, know? definitely. But, but I think it. I think it works. Like I don't know what they do. I think it. You know, is necessary. I just really like. I, I'm just so interested in the the world and what's transpired. You know, since 2019, that like every scene that kind of fleshes that out. Just you know, even from the point of like when he goes to the to the guy to analyze the the wooden uh, toy. You know, it's just it, I, little details like that, you know, that kind of flesh out the world, I think, are important. And, you know, they add to the running time, but it's, you know, it's good stuff. Yeah, it doesn't overexplain either. It gives you just enough information to get you really curious and feel as if this is the way that people really would talk and to move the plot forward. But, like, I'm not sure within the film I'd want to see more explanation. I mean, that's kind of what I was getting at when talking about the short films. Like, I'm not sure within the film it's necessary to talk any more about the blackout or any of these other things that happened before and then we get by fine without it but doesn't mean that it's not really intriguing yeah i also really enjoyed the movie i think this is an excellent example of the right way to make a sequel to a movie that's not your movie like you're sort of taking on a on some level like called your beloved property and saying well i'm going to make more of that right and Blade Runner 2049, I think, directly grapples with the themes of the original Blade Runner and with stylistically while still providing new things and new interesting directions to go. And so it still feels like its own film rather than pale retread. It, so it's like the opposite of Terminator Genesis, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, the back of the box does famously say... In big big letters, you do not need to have seen the original film in order to enjoy this. <laughs> I really enjoyed that on the box. <laughs> yeah, I think this movie works really well. And I think even if you hadn't seen, that's actually a reasonable point, though, right? Like, despite the fact that that's funny, like, that's a marketing ploy. Like, you, you can watch this on your own, guys. It's okay. <laughs> right? But, but that's true on some level, right? Yeah. Like, you don't need to have seen Blade Runner to understand this. Even though parts of it are a sequel, the parts that you need to have seen from Blade Runner like are brought up in this movie to remind you slash tell you for the first time. So it works on its own, I think. I only saw the original once, you know, a, a year ago. And so, you know, it wasn't very super fresh in my mind or anything. And I, I thought it very worked really well as a standalone movie. So, yeah, bring on the anime. Yeah. Yeah, Watanabe, what are you working on? <laughs> what better do you have to do? They make this anime for us, please. Or a or a grand, huge, uh, sprawling AAA game Inst- oh. instead of, instead of Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven or whatever. Just make the Blade <laughs> Runner game. He is working on a TV show called Carol and Tuesday. Apparently, hmm. okay. Scheduled for April twenty nineteen. All right, Paul. You've watched something that we thought you should watch, and that you th- thankfully held off on for our sake. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, now's your opportunity to tell the world something you think they should experience. So 
I don't mean to always stick and pick with, pick a video game that people want to play. <laughs> and I know that like 30 to 40 hours is much more of a commitment, but <laughs> I think that if you like the themes in Blade Runner, that you would probably to some extent enjoy the game Near Automata, which is... Okay, good. Not Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> no. no. Um, there's there are some similarities in that you are you're essentially a replicant um, in the game, and you are tasked by the remains of humanity who have escaped the war torn Earth and escaped to the moon, and you're androids tasked by humans to fight these uh, rogue machines who are uh, have basically taken over the Earth. But as you go through the games, uh, I think there's five endings to the game. That's just kind of the structure there is. Um, it really, you start to realize that there's more to these machines than being mere automata. So, uh, yeah, without going too far into it, I think that near automata is, it's one of those games, it kind of broke some narrative ground in that sense. And yeah, if you, if you like the themes that the Blade Runner universe explores, that uh, you, you might might like that game and it and that is available on pc ps4 and xbox one i believe so along the lines of restrained ryan gosling performances <laughs> if you liked his performance in blade runner 2049 by the time this episode comes out you should still be able to go see first man uh which is a biopic where he portrays neil armstrong the first man on the moon and it's like Blade Runner is kind of a warm up for for, the, for this performance, as far as a man holding in emotion as much as he possibly can and feeling like he might explode at any moment. Strangely, but um, it has some of the best accurate space travel scenes that I've ever seen. Extremely compelling stuff. And if you have a chance to go see it in IMAX, I would suggest that too. But I don't think it's fully necessary. So anyway, you can see it. It should still be able to go right now. I uh, I haven't seen that yet, but I have been. I'm planning to do that sometime this week. The most intense and engrossing depiction of space travel I've ever seen, and that's why I give it only four stars out of five. Well, that's not the have whole movie. Have you deleted movie. your letterboxed account yet? Because you're just pure garbage. <laughs> so you think the most intense depiction of space travel ever by itself makes it a perfect review? Four and a half stars. Well. Depends what's going on with the rest of it. And there's a lot of the rest of it. It's not just space travel. Again, you gave Doctor Strange three stars despite only having seen half an hour of it. (laughs) (laughs) Delete your account. (laughs) I'm still plugging at the end of the show. (laughs) Adam? (laughs) Well, uh, I think you should experience the joy that comes when Charlie deletes his letterboxed account. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I'm going to recommend something that's similar but different. So if you sat through this movie and you went, you know, I really enjoyed the dystopian feel, but I really wish there were more action involved, then uh, I got the movie for you. It's from 2012, and it's called Dread. Hmm. That's right. I'm recommending the Judge Dread movie, the good oh. one, <laughs> with Carl Urban. That movie is excellent, and you should watch it if you have not seen it. And if you have seen it, you should watch it again. I'll put it on my list of uh, movies to pick up on 4K Blu-ray. Does it have a 4K As far release? as 4K Blu-rays go. I think it does. Oh, okay. It's only uh, $18 at Best Buy. Yeah, see, that that's like a steal for a 4K Blu-ray. And you get a digital copy. So, Paul, thank you very much for being on the show. It's great to have you again. And 
next time we do uh there's a Blade Runner movie comes out, we'll have you back on. Oh, well, uh I hope we don't have to wait for that, but <laughs> maybe before that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the only time you're allowed back. <laughs> But I, I really hope that there is another one and that and that that does bring me back on the show quickly because I'd love to see more. But yeah, it was, it was good. Thanks for having me on. Cool. Awesome. If you haven't already, uh, please make sure to subscribe to our podcast. It's easy on the website, cinematicrespect.com. Uh, also, we're on Twitter, Instagram, and still Letterboxd, at least for now, Adam. No, get rid of it. <laughs> Come on, don't, don't waste your time. Don't go to Letterboxd. You'll just get angry. <laughs> That's what they call hot takes, Adam. People love hot takes. <laughs> uh, the silence as he fumes. <laughs>I think it was, we did our um, episode on the 1982 film Blade Runner. And around that, so about a year ago, we did our, uh, so about a year ago, we did an episode, sorry, sorry. Don't add all the pauses in. Ah! (laughs) So about a year ago, we did, uh, I keep wanting to say review. And the question is whether what we do is really reviewing or not. I guess it is. Call discussion. (sighs) (laughs) this is your fault i know it's whenever i have to say something specific friends with me (laughs) so about a year ago we had our discussion of the 1982 film blade Runner. conversation conversation sounds better than discussion sorry i just (laughs) (laughs) am i wrong i mean it does it sounds better so about a year ago we had a discussion of the 1982 conversation You're enjoying this a lot, aren't you? <laughs> All right. A little bit, yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> well, because now it turned into a bit. <laughs> and after an encounter with uh, one such unregistered replicant, he discovers the remains of another replicant who appears to have actually uh, born a child. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that father to child and mother to child aren't parallel. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Sorry. Mother means something's very just random. Yeah. Yeah. Random side when I was just like, not fathered because she's a woman, but mother doesn't mean the same thing. Okay. (laughs) Because a father's job is to make the child and a mother's job is to take care of it. Right. (laughs) That's the the implication. Very sexist language. Wow. I I know. (laughs) All right. Okay. So we're. Great, we got a we got one of the seven tags for this show. Awesome. <laughs> the Book of Henry. What'd you think? <laughs> Truly Colin Trevorrow's best best film so far. Ouch. <laughs> that's not true. Edge of Tomorrow's him, right? Because that's probably his best film. That movie is legit awesome. You mean Live Die Repeat, right? That's the movie you're talking about? you <laughs> i don't know what movie oh, that's you're not, talking about <laughs> that's not colin trevorrow <laughs> that is someone named doug lyman oh oh the born identity guy all right yeah so we cut all this but yeah, that's fine <laughs> <laughs>
Live, die, repeat. Get out of here. <laughs> it's been retconned. <laughs> That's what it's called. No, now. it has not. 